I've got a quick little resource spot this morning. This morning we are going to be challenging uh, ourselves. We're going to be asking ourselves, what are those strongholds, those idols that we've set up in our life? What are those things that we've created? They might be very good things, very good things that are not ultimate things. And so we're going to be challenging ourselves really about I, I, idolatry. So this quick little um, one-minute uh, apologist. This is a, so many wonderful Christians producing fantastic content online. If you want some more on any topic, I've got a whole bunch of them I can recommend to you. This is one, and this is a guy called the One Minute Apologist. Now, apologist, isn't, apologist in Christian circles isn't saying sorry for something, but explaining your faith, defending your faith. So this is the One Minute Apologist. What is idolatry? Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. Apologetics seeks to give credible answers to curious questions, to give a defense. What is idolatry? John the Apostle said, keep yourselves from idols. Well, this begs the question, what then is idolatry? Idolatry is the sin of creating pseudo-ultimates in place of the ultimate ultimate, who is God. It is looking to other things besides God to provide ultimate fulfillment in our lives. Now, granted, we're not melting down our gold, throwing parties, and dancing around it. Uh, we have a different type of idolatry. It's updated, 2.0 style. Call it neo-idolatry. It's a little more sophisticated, perhaps. It comes packaged differently. We market it differently, but never Nevertheless, it does the same thing to our heart. It's been said before by John Calvin that the human heart is an idol factory. We churn out idol after idol after idol. And these are often good things that become ultimate things in our lives. I remember hearing a story about an American pastor who was in, in, in India. And he was walking down a dusty road and he came upon a place where they were sacrificing uh, to uh, chickens to the chicken god. And basically, uh, as you know, there are over 300 million idols in India. And he spoke to this lady there and he said, hey, will you ever come to America? And she says, oh, I've been there before. I'll never come again. He was shocked and he asked why. She said, because I cannot stomach the idolatry. He thought, here I am watching people sacrifice, you know, chickens to the chicken gods and she can't stomach the idolatry? What's the deal? And where do you see idols? He wondered. She said, your idols are everywhere. You build stadiums to your idols and you gather around and you worship your idols and stadiums. You throw parties in your family rooms and invite your friends to come and gather before for your idols in your family rooms. You build restaurants to your idols. They're on every corner. They're all over the place. You see, isn't it interesting how idolatry has a different perspective looking through the lens of one culture than it does our own? We need to realize that idolatry is running rampant, not in every culture, but in every human heart. And the way we crush idolatry is through craving God. What do you think? Pretty challenging, isn't it? The human heart is an idol factory. Just let that stew for a little moment. Just let that sit with you and ask yourself, I'm going to be challenging you at the end of my message in a little while. What are the idols that you've set up? You might like to just be doing some foundational 
work within yourself to ask, what am I setting up in my life as an idol in my life? But in the meantime, why don't we just uh, turn to your neighbour and say good day? perhaps introduce yourself to someone that you haven't met before. Let's spend a moment doing some community and building up our relationship with each other. Little kids can head out to Kids Club. God bless you guys. Hope you have a great time at Kids Church this morning. Go well, guys. Love you all. Jesus told the following story. Once upon a time there was a rich man who lived in a magnificent house. The man was always dressed according to the latest fashion, and he obviously enjoyed his wealth. His house was continually crowded with people celebrating the good life at its countless parties. Close to the entrance of the house, there was another man, Lazarus. He was a tramp, always roaming around in the neighborhood, hoping to get hold of some leftovers from the banquets of the rich. Lazarus was in a deplorable state. His body was covered in dirty wounds that were licked by the street dogs. He was in a bad shape, and one day, Lazarus was found dead under the tree where he had always sat. Angels of God came to take him to a peaceful place. There he was seated to the side of Father Abraham. Abraham is also known as the father of all the faithful. After a while, the rich man also died. He had a solemn funeral, but the angels of God did not come to take him away. After he had died, he opened his eyes. He was suffering heavy pains, and he had ended up in a nasty place. We've been following our way through Luke's gospel. We're getting to the end. There are Bibles up the back. If you haven't got a Bible, you might want to go grab one. If you've got your phone open, you might want to follow along or your iPad. Uh, you can look it up online. BibleGateway.com is the website that I like to use. Another bit of a resource for you. I actually have gotten quicker at looking up BibleGateway.com than opening up a physical Bible. So BibleGateway.com should be in your list of favorites. You can choose different languages, different translations. It's a good way to compare different translations to each other. So BibleGateway.com, otherwise um, hard copies of the Bible up the back. We've been working our way through Luke, following Luke. Jesus is now in Jerusalem. He's been working his way back to Jerusalem for the final time. And he has arrived. Disciples are wondering at the majesty of the temple. I'm going to be reading from verse 5. Luke chapter 21, 
verse 5 through to 19 says this. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Amen. What a good promise to end a rough reading on. By standing firm, you will gain life. Church, let's pray. Loving Lord, we come seeking more of you this morning. We pray that as we open up your word, you'll come alive to us through it. We pray that you'll speak to us through your word this morning, through these challenging words, these hard-hitting words, these these promises of Jesus uh, with mixed blessings for we, your church, Father. Father, we pray that we might be challenged, but Father, we pray that we might be encouraged. We pray that we might be refined this morning. We pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, Amen. In every age, in every generation, I think there's probably a defining moment that sort of sets the zeitgeist or sets the, sets the tone, sets the, sets the vibe, sets the culture of the place. Perhaps even it's, it's, it's legacy, something that really defines a, a generation, perhaps. You might be wondering, what is it for you? I, I, uh, I have the privilege on, on a few occasions of speaking to people who lived through uh, lived through the war, for example, lived through the Blitz. I remember one of uh, uh, the beautiful, magnificent elder couples uh, that, that in a previous church that really helped mentor me with an old Baptist minister and his wife named uh, Colin and Muriel Jones. Magnificent saints. They're in glory now. But Muriel lived through the Blitz in London. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to have death literally raining down upon you? A major city is being 
being bombed. It was clearly a very traumatic uh, time for her in her life. She was, of course, only just a, a child at the time, but she would often talk about having lived through the Blitz. She got shifted out to the country eventually, but she survived this very traumatic episode. Living through a war would do that to you, I think. Uh, the next generation, my, my father's generation, was perhaps the, the Vietnam War. My dad talks about wondering if his number would come up to be drafted for the Vietnam War. I, they did it along, uh, along birth dates, didn't they? So the story goes. And, uh, you know, my father's mates had to go off and, and fight in a, in a crazy war over, overseas. I think for, for my generation, we didn't have to go off and, and fight a, a, a war. But I think the images that sort of still stick in my head was waking up on September 11 to see that event that really changed the world, don't you think? People of my generation, I, I remember waking up in the morning very clearly and the, radio, the alarm clock went off beside my, my bed and I could tell the, the presenters on the radio that morning were a bit agitated. It wasn't their usual bouncy self. There was something very grave, very serious in their tone of voice. And instead of staggering my way into the shower, I decided to go into the living room and click on the TV. And there were these images of these buildings collapsing, planes flying into building, and not one stone left on top of another. Dark times. The world seemed a little bit less certain. It was on the other side of the world, but nevertheless, in the global world in which we live, it, it did seem as though... The might and power, not simply of the United States, but of the Western world as a whole, a Western capitalist society, all of a sudden was brought to its knees by ten men armed with, with pocket knives. Scary times, dark times. All of a sudden, things seemed a little bit less certain. Unimaginable. Unthinkable. I mean, how could, how could this happen? Perhaps you might think of something in your life that was really defining for you, where all of a sudden, something that you thought was very stable, something that you thought would be there forever was, was taken from you. This is the context that Jesus is speaking into this morning. Jesus made his way back to Jerusalem. His disciples, finally they're there, here they are. And you can imagine that disciples, they still think at this stage there's going to be a revolution. They're still thinking military takeover, worldly power and might. They're here in God's city, Zion, and the magnificence of the temple. In those days, the temple dominated the Jerusalem skyline in much the same way as the Twin Towers dominated the New York skyline, uh, perhaps even more so when you think about it. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem. Hands up if you've been to Jerusalem. A few people have. And on that temple, on that temple mount, there now sits a, a mosque, the, the, the Dome of the Rock is what it's called. It's got a gold dome and it dominates from the pictures that I've seen. I'm sure you can testify. It dominates the Jerusalem skyline, Mount Zion. The residents of Jerusalem were very proud of it. The, the temple, of course, represented God's very presence here on earth. It's very different to you and I today coming to a, a church building and and being church and encountering God. No, 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 no. The, the temple was the very presence of God on earth. The holy of holies behind a big, thick curtain that, of course, was torn asunder from top to bottom very shortly after this event on Good Friday represented the very presence of God on earth. The high priest only got to go in there once a year to encounter God. 
These were people who were very proud to live within the shadow of God's temple in God's city. It was a magnificent structure adorned with stones, and so they couldn't imagine a time when it wouldn't be there. But of course, Jesus, a bit of a wet blanket upon it all, Jesus really deflates them, and he says, you know what, guys, the time is coming when it's all going to be pulled down. It's all going to be thrown down. Not one stone left on, on top of, of another. What? How, could, how could this be? I mean, this was unthinkable. How could how, the temple pull down? Yet in the year 70 AD, that is exactly what happened. In the year 70 AD, there was a Jewish rebellion. The Jewish nationalists finally rounded up enough blokes to try to think they could foolishly take on the might of the Roman Empire, but it was brutally put down. And as a result, the temple was leveled. It was destroyed by Roman soldiers, pulling it apart, looking for treasure. It was gone. It was the end of an era. To this day, there is no temple on the Temple Mount, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Unthinkable tragedy. Just unimaginable devastation, national shame, gone pride. You can, you can barely begin to imagine it. I mean, I'm a fairly proud Sydney sider. I've lived all my life just about within an hour or two of the Harbour Bridge. If something ever happened, I'd be, you know, we'd, we'd feel a sense of shame and loss, wouldn't we? But magnify multiple times over the shame and the sense of loss, the national sense of disgrace and shame with the temple being gone. That's what Jesus is pointing these men towards. The challenge for us today is to know that the temples that we put our faith in, the strongholds that we put our faith in, most of the time are not built out of stone. They're not built of steel and, and glass these days. In these hyper-individualistic times, I reckon most of our idols we construct ourselves in our own heart. We construct our idols for ourselves that we put our trust in. Not so much of grand buildings or, or of architecture anymore, but our job, our career, our position description on our, under our name and our business card. We've worked hard. Pete, I've studied hard to get there. I've worked hard to get right. Absolutely you have. I don't doubt that for one second even though we might not admit it to others, and we may not even be aware of it ourselves, but our job kind of has taken on a place in our life where it defines us. Particularly this is an issue for we blokes, isn't it? What are blokes when we get together at a barbecue? G'day, what's your name? What's the second question we ask? What do you do? We define ourselves by what we do rather than by who we are or whose we are. It can be... A real problem. We think, well, my career is set. Nothing can ever come of it until, of course, the economy takes a downturn. You make a boneheaded decision at work and you lose your job. You get that diagnosis from the doctor. It's, I'm sorry, you're going to have to cut back on your work. You're going to have to quit work. You suffer some sort of an injury and you're no longer able to work. And all of a sudden, the temple that you thought there was always be there that defined you. It's gone. Every stone cast down 
dark times, scary times, uncertain times. For others of us, of, of course, we put our trust in, like the video said, these aren't bad things. It's not a bad thing to have a career. It's not a bad thing to want to be married with children. But again, this is an idol we set up in our lives. That so many people think, I can really start to live once I'm married. Once I get a husband and have kids, then I can start to live. I define myself by my family. Until such time as well, infidelity causes your marriage to end or you just can't find that, that right person or you look back at yourself in the mirror one day and you're 48 years old and you realise... Marriage and kids isn't going to happen for you, perhaps. For others of us, it might be our beautiful bodies and our, our, our fitness. Our, our very, we live in a very image-conscious time, don't we? See it all the time, the active wear, up and down the mall. People take great pride in their bodies. Men and women, I have to say, men increasingly getting plastic surgery. Men working out at the gym to try to get the ideal body. Not everyone can look like this, fellas, all right? Until again, you look in the mirror. You didn't have to laugh that hard, Monica. You... <laughs> Till one day, you look in the mirror and there's a 48-year-old bald guy looking back at you. And you realise, no matter how hard you hit the gym, you're never going to be able to recapture the fitness and vigour of your youthfulness when you're a 24-year-old. Every stone cast down. Uncertain times. What does the future hold? These things that I put my, my trust in. This is what Jesus is challenging, I think, this morning. He's telling us that all the temples will fall. Stones will be pulled down, things that we put our trust in, it's not going to, to end well. He does give us a little, bit of a, a little bit of a picture of what is to come, but he, he does so with a warning of stop trying to look around the corner of the future. The disciples ask, how are we going to know? When, when is this terrible thing going to happen? What's going to be the sign? Jesus, in fact, really just says, you know what, guys, don't be led astray by false prophets. The gospel isn't about being able to see the future. The gospel isn't about making sure that our temples don't fall because they inevitably will, is what Jesus is saying here. Things will get pretty bleak. Some of these terrible prophecies that he mentions here are a reality for many people around the world to this day. We've been sheltered here in Australia for a long time, as long as I can remember. We're starting to see the first little glimpses of persecution creeping in. People being cast out of jobs, not even for something they've said, something their minister said years ago. They're trawling through old line, online sermons now to try to make sure there's no Christians involved that may say anything controversial. It's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in Christ have been dealing with overseas. But you can begin to see perhaps a little bit of what Jesus is talking about here coming to the Western world perhaps. Really dark stuff. He says, you're going to be, some of you, put to death. But, notice what he says straight after. But not a hair of your head will perish. How does that work? You're going to be put to death, but you won't perish. Praise God. You understand what Jesus is saying here? They can kill the body, 
But if your trust is in me, if I am your stronghold, you won't perish. Amen? So you're going to be arrested. You're going to be dragged off before the courts of the synagogues. They're going to... But he said, look at verse 13. If you've got it open in front of you, you're going to testify for me. What a powerful witness that will be. He says, to not worry about what you're going to say. He says, I'm going to give you the words to say. What a wonderful promise that is. That in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of it all, you will still be able to give a testimony for the hope that you have in me, says Jesus. What a powerful witness that will be. And then verse 18, some of you will be put to death, but you will not perish. I think that's a great promise, a wonderful promise. And then he concludes this passage with that wonderful promise. By standing firm, you'll gain life. Jesus, of course, is well qualified to talk about being put to death and gaining life. Jesus went through death and defeated the grave to bring you and I new life. Amen? That's why we are the Easter people. We are the resurrection people. Jesus is giving us here a glimpse of what is to come in his own life. Put to death, but not perishing. In a way, he's actually saying, when you think about it, the path to life is actually through death. That's what we believe as followers of Jesus, that by putting to death the self, we are in fact able to gain life. This is the symbolism of baptism, as I've explained it to you. We die to self, we die to our own agendas, to our own idols, and we are raised to new life in Christ. It is through dying to ourself that we live. It is by dying to the things of this world, our earthly idols, our earthly strongholds, that is how we find life, by looking to Jesus Christ as our sole hope for life eternal, for life in the resurrection, in this life and the next. The gospel is that not that these temples that we set for ourselves won't fall. They inevitably will. But the gospel is that as they come crumbling down around us, that we will have hope, hope for abundant life in this life and the next. So, I encourage you to be thinking that maybe if you've got a temple crumbling around you at the moment, think of maybe a time when you've experienced something similar in the past and you begin to realise actually didn't feel like it at the time, but that was actually God working through those set of circumstances. And I can actually see clearly now his will. Sometimes I think God works through those times of breaking down our defences, breaking down our strongholds. They are when the times, they are the times when we look back, we actually recognise that was when God was speaking most clearly to us. So let me conclude by asking you a few application questions to take away this week. What are the strongholds? What are the temples? What are the idols that you've set up in, in your life? They may be built things. They may be you're the house. They may be the wonderful renovations you've just completed that you love showing off to friends and families. There's a lot of that about in my generation. A lot about people in my age, about my vintage that bought into the property market before prices went ridiculous and are now doing pretty well, thank you very much. New kitchen, new bathroom, new renos, a lot of that going on. If you've been watching The Block, you'll know all about that. 
until the bottom drops out of the market and interest rates rise and all of a sudden you're left with an asset you can't get rid of. What is it that you've set up in your life that you're putting your trust in to give your life meaning, that defines you, that when it's all said and done in the darkness of night, in the, in the quietness, in the stillness, if you're honest with yourself, that you put your, your trust in, what you go to, what you look to for hope in this life. If it's anything other than Jesus himself, friend, let me assure you that you're putting your trust in things that are one day going to be thrown down. Not a single stone will be left on top of another. Can I encourage you to get rid of those idols, get rid of those temples, those strongholds, and resist the temptation to quickly throw up another one? Because that is always the temptation. We recognize one and we, we name it and we are able to expose it in, in our heart and confess it and give it over, but we quickly run to another one and start erecting another tower. Can I encourage you this week, friends, to, to look within yourself, see where that you've begin to erect a, an idol in your life that won't go the distance, that will be one day thrown down. Can I encourage you to be looking to Christ alone for your hope, for your sense of permanency, for your sense of meaning and purpose, looking to Jesus alone as your source of joy and peace, peace that the world cannot give, peace and joy, abundant resurrection life in this life and the next. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. As the band comes up, we're going to just have a moment of confession, giving these things over to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, you are so good to us. You are so forgiving. You are so patient. When we set up idols in our lives, you patiently, gently bring them to our attention, Father, so in the stillness and the quietness, we confess to you now those things that we put our trust in, that we look to to bring us joy, that we wake up in the morning and look forward to, Father. If they're not of you, Father, help us to put them to one side, to leave them at the foot of the cross, to lay them down, and to look to you and to you alone as our source of hope and peace and joy and abundant, eternal resurrection life in this life and the next. And all the people said...